Okay. <clears throat> Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is the first session on our dis in our discussion of the War of the Ring, Volume Three of the History of the Lord of the Rings, Volume Eight. Uh, I think it's eight. Pretty sure it's eight. <laughs> yes, it is eight uh, of the history of Middle Earth that we have been going through volume by volume now for the last several years. Um, so, I, I, I am excited uh, to jump in tonight. We're going to be jumping in at one of my favorite points in the book, which is, of course, the Battle of Harolf's Clue, uh, which uh, I know is everybody else's favorite, too. Um, first, let me just start off with uh, uh, first one uh, sort of apology. I'm... Uh, not entirely well from a physical standpoint. Uh, I have uh, had contagion visited upon my household by my children as usual. Uh, so I am... Um, I'm a little bit under the weather this evening. I think I should be able to make it through okay. I, 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 uh, think, I think I'll be alright. But uh, there, you know, there's a non-zero chance I might have to maybe stop early or something. Uh, but we'll probably be will probably be okay. Um, uh, and uh, by the way, uh, uh, Stephen, I'm kind of guessing actually at how to pronounce clue. I think it's clue. It could be cloth for all I know. Um, but uh, it's from the Anglo-Saxon word claw, uh, so I think it's uh, I think it's probably clue. Um, rhymes with slew. Right, S L O U G H, uh, meaning like a swamp or mire, uh, such as the slough of despond, uh, into which Christian falls uh, and is nearly mired uh, at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress. Um, anyway, um, so um, so yeah, and Tara, I, I know I do need to rest up for the chicken run on Saturday. I'm going to try to I'm going to try to recover over the next couple days, uh, but uh, but we're 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 pretty good. Um, <laughs> yes, Curtis, exactly. I am saying, I don't, well, I guess I do have a clue about how to pronounce it, but, uh, but only it's a, it's a very, it's a fairly tenuous one. Um, anyway, so welcome everybody who's joining us. It's, a, it's a wonderful to see such a great list of people here and I see a bunch of new faces with us. So glad you could join us tonight. Um, let me start off with, uh, and I just also to mention that we're, uh, simulcasting, uh, on twitch.tv slash This the Twitch channel of Signum University. So hi to, I see a bunch of people there on Twitch as well. Um, just to let you know, I, I am, I'm going to be trying to monitor the Twitch chat as well, but uh, I'm primarily going to be interacting with folks in the GoToWebinar chat, which is uh, through the questions box that you submit there. Um, those I see in real time, so I'll be trying to, uh, I'll be trying to, uh, to, to get. Uh, to, to follow that uh, most closely, but I am also keeping an eye on the Twitch chat as well. So, um, yeah, that's good. All right, so oh, there was something else I was going to say, but I don't remember what it was. This is another problem with being sick. I'm, my wits are not at their sharpest here, so uh, 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 bear with me. But okay, um, so um, so let's, um, let's do a couple quick announcements because there are a bunch of things going on that I want to... Um, uh, that I want to make sure to... and Oh, yes, Arthur, thank you for the reminder. I think that was the thing that I just forgot. Um, on the on the, on the webpage, if you go to the, the, the webpage for the War of the Ring class, um, on mythgard.org, 
uh, go to the Academy tab and click on the page for, uh, for the War of the Ring, and you will find a little bouncing icon at the bottom uh, for a chat room. Th- that is a, a separate chat room. That is you, that's the, the talk amongst yourselves chat room uh, that we have always had um, for people who want to, to, to uh, talk together yeah, instead of just submitting, in addition, I should say, to just submitting questions to me. Um, okay, so um, uh, we're gonna be. Uh, hey, Craig, that's great. Actually, yeah. So I'm not. I'm, so Craig, uh, in this class, I'm, I'm gonna try to remain. Gen- after I finish my announcements, generally focused. We're gonna go through the first two chapters, really chapter two uh, of the War of the Ring. So I'm gonna be doing fairly close reading of that. So I'm not gonna be doing a whole bunch of like free range uh, kind of lore questions a really great lore question so save that and uh uh, best place to submit that is like during one of my grifflet lotro streams or um uh or you know there are other places even exploring the lord of the rings you know you can talk about some stuff like that uh, and we can get into those things very little we don't get around to talking about sooner or later and exploring the lord of the rings um but uh anyway okay so let's um Let's get to so quick announcements. So first, um, I wanted to announce. You guys will remember last year. I talked about this uh, last night, exploring the Lord of the Rings a little bit. But you may remember from last year, the Hobbit camp that we did over the summer, which was our, our sort of our first experimental effort. It was the first time that Signum ever did a program uh, uh, designed for for kids, uh, a free, open, public program for middle schoolers. Um, our Hobbit camp last summer, and that was super fun. Uh, and the way that we set it up. It was really neat. Um, we did it in partnership with local libraries and school groups. So uh, we have, uh, you know, we do a, a broadcast uh, every day, five days a week for two weeks, um, going through The Hobbit, talking about it, taking taking questions from kids and from groups of kids. Um, but we also partner with local institutions, like especially public libraries, but as I say, also homeschool groups or other just families uh, who joined us independently even. Um, and uh, to, to, to have a place where they can get together, they can either watch the classes together, uh, a lot of people did that, or they can watch them asynchronously and get together for some discussion and extra uh, projects and discussion and things like that. We did, uh, uh, we send out a, uh, a whole big packet of activities and projects and, and things that, uh, that kids can do as they're working their way through the book to sort of... Uh, you know, kind of wrap their minds and their imagine their imaginations really immerse themselves uh, in the Hobbit. It was really, really fun. Uh, we had a wonderful time, uh, and so we decided that we were going to do that again this year. Except we were going to do it even better and even more. So this summer, uh, the Signum Academy. Uh, is featuring four different camps. So we're going to do the Hobbit camp again because uh, you know we kind of introduced it pretty close to the end. Last time it was too late for a lot of people to adopt it, so we wanted to give another chance for people to to go through The Hobbit with us. Um, but we're also adding three other camps this year. We're adding Potter Camp, Narnia Camp, uh, and Madeline Lengo Camp. So we're doing A Wrinkle in Time, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in addition uh, to The Hobbit. And you can see on this page here the dates um, for... Uh, uh, for the for the different camps, there's some there's some overlap. You know, we weren't we're, we're not able to. Uh, you know, we wanted to kind of stay within a particular range here of dates, um, 
but uh, which which is kind of tricky, especially given how different people in different parts of the country start school at different times and stuff. But we tried to do the best we could and hope that people have an opportunity uh, to do at least one camp that you will find fun. And of course. Uh, people are welcome to participate in more than one. These are absolutely free, uh, so there is no charge to families to be involved in this. For you know, there's no charge to the kids. There's no charge uh, for libraries either. Um, it's free to everybody. So uh, we are uh, really excited about this. Rachel, uh, great, yeah, great to hear that your kids loved it uh, last year. Uh, oh, good. So they're going to do Harry Potter. Really neat. Really neat. Um, yeah, so this is this is going to be really fun. If you have any questions about the program and how it works or how you can sign up, um, we've got uh, this convenient button here. Uh, you can just uh, send us an email uh, to uh, to ask about this. We encourage you if you if you want to take part, just register your group and we'll be in touch with you. Um, so uh, it should be uh, it should be really fun. I encourage you to tell your local library about this. Again, this costs nothing uh, for the libraries, and it's we'll, we do pretty much all the work, right? All they have to do is. Uh, have a space for kids to come to their library and, you know, uh, talk about books and get excited about, you know, thinking about some of these really fun books over the summer. So, you know, that that is usually a kind of thing that um, uh, that that uh, libraries and librarians are are supportive of. So here, let me uh, uh, let me post the direct link. Uh, actually, hang on a second. Let me post the direct link to everybody here and let me uh, post it here on Twitch as well. Just just make sure everybody who is watching live can have that. Alright. There we go. Um, actually, I think that we, uh, we even put in a, a cunning... Yeah, look at that. Moobot has that in Twitch. That's pretty cool. Anyhow, so uh, this should be... Uh, um, this should be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to this. So I hope that you'll uh, spread the word. We've got a lot of information on this page, uh, talking about how it's supposed to work and having some Q&A down at the bottom. And, um, you know, this should really be, this page should include all the information that, you know, your local library needs. So just, you know, send your librarian to this page uh, and uh, see if they would be interested in signing up. Uh, we would, even the more the merrier. We'd love to We'd love to share that. Yeah, and the direct uh, email address for the contact uh, is camp at signumu.org if you want to contact us about that. So that is my first announcement. I'm uh, uh, these are going to be really great. I I loved the Hobbit camp last year. It was such a rewarding experience, and I am delighted that we're able to expand it this year. the second thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, something I've been talking about a lot because it's one of the one of the big programs that we are working on this year, which is our regional moots. We are expanding our regional events. Um, we've had Mythmoot, and Mythmoot is awesome and it's fantastic. It is our flagship event. It is our biggest event. It is a, a four day conference uh, and just the coolest place with the coolest group of people you ever spend a weekend with. But um, you know, I know that not everybody can uh, make it to Mythmoot every year, uh, and it, it's not easy for everybody to travel. Uh, Myth uh, Mythmoot is in Leesburg, Virginia, and I know that 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 location isn't uh, exactly convenient to everybody. So we've started our program of regional moots, uh, having events at different places around the country. Just little one-day events. They're, you know, it's not like Mythmoot. They're very inexpensive. Uh, generally, the cost to attend is, you know. $25, maybe $30 at most uh, for the whole day. 
you know, so the, 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 the price is really reasonable. Uh, we try to make them as convenient as we can for lots and lots of people. Uh, so anyway, it's, um, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a really exciting, uh, uh, set of events. We've had our first few of them. We've got a bunch more planned and coming up. Uh, we're, we're working on uh, upcoming events in Los Angeles, the, the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, in uh, North Carolina, in Charlotte, North Carolina, in Denver, in uh, New England, uh, uh, lots of places, lots of places. Um, there are also other places that we're really interested uh, in, and most of these events are, are, are run by, we have an events team um, uh, who who does a wonderful job in helping everybody get prepared, but in order for us to make a regional mood happen, one of the major things that we need is a local volunteer, somebody who would be interested in helping to, to make it happen. Um, we really kind of need somebody on the ground in the area. Um, and then if we have a volunteer, we have uh, we have a whole template of basically how this works and what needs to be done. And uh, uh, and we're we are uh, ready to provide all the support uh, that our volunteers need uh, to help to make the events happen. And it's been really, really neat. Um, if you are living in an, there are a couple places where we um, if you're living in one of the areas that I just mentioned uh, and would like to be involved in uh, in maybe contributing to planning one of those events, let me know. Um, if you are in, there are a couple other areas that I'm really interested in establishing uh, events in, and which we're still in the early stages of planning for that, and I'm especially interested to locate volunteers for. Uh, and those would be uh, Toronto, Florida, Seattle, and Australia or New Zealand. I would love to have a New Zealand moot. Uh, that would be uh, that's been something I've been wishing for for about ten years. Uh, uh, but uh, but again, I'd love to see if we could connect somebody uh, somebody down there. Stephen, yeah, so great to meet you at Tex Moot. We just had our had our Texas regional moot uh, in January, which was our second one ever. That will be uh, that will be really cool. Yeah, James, we're definitely planning New England. We're thinking autumn because who doesn't like autumn in New England, right? It's it's fantastic and. Uh, the great greatest time to be up here and uh so james i'm thinking probably we're, we're i'm sort of looking at uh amherst massachusetts basically somewhere kind of central not too hard to get to from boston but also easy to pop up from new york so that's kind of the that's kind of the hope um yeah kiwi mood exactly curtis that's just what i'm kind of hoping for so jim we're not actually going to come to atlanta but we are going to come to charlotte north carolina which is only just a little bit up the road from you guys so that's one of them you know we can't visit every city in the country but we are trying to we are trying to find places where we have connections with local people who can help us organize uh, and we're trying to do those strategically so that we reach as many major metropolitan areas uh as we can so um so cool. And yeah, London, of course, yeah, I forgot about London. Of course, that's that. Well, actually, I didn't quite forget. I was saving that one for the end. Uh, London moot uh, is, you know, we, we, we've been uh, really I've been I'm so psyched that we're finally going to get to Europe uh, and be able to hang out with some of our European friends that we've never been able to do that really uh, 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 with. We've, you know, sort of by the nature of our, you know, my time zone and everything. I know we've always neglected our European friends, so I'm I'm very excited we're having it we're having our first regional moot over in Europe. We're holding it in London. London moot uh which is going to be it's coming up soon, April 28th. That's our next uh our 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 next on the schedule moot. Uh and uh that's going to be that's going to be really great. Yana, so glad you're going to be able to uh uh to come out for the weekend. Yeah, that's going to be 
that's going to be neat. So, uh, and Stephanie, you're going to help at Charlotte Moot. Fantastic. That's excellent. Uh, yeah, Charlotte should be great. Um, uh, yeah, and we're thinking probably, Stephanie, we're thinking probably November for Charlotte. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to go down south, just like we did Texas in January, right? I'm excited to uh, uh, travel down south when it's uh, really cold up here in New Hampshire. So anyway, um, and we, we are, Veronica, we're totally coming to the San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, probably Oakland in August is what we're looking at. Actually, August of this year, August 2018. Um, we are finalizing date uh, uh, for that, but we'll be able to announce that soon. That's totally happening, Veronica. It's going to be great. Um, but anyway, yeah. So see, isn't this cool, Veronica? This is exactly the kind of thing that I'm so excited about. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to... I'm going to be doing a lot of traveling, you know, this year and next year and, you know, kind of doing the rounds. And I'm so looking forward to getting to meet people and uh, and, uh, you know, to, to, to get to meet so many of you that, uh, I've been interacting with online for so many years. Uh, so that's going to be, uh, that's going to be really cool anyway. So, but again, if you're interested in volunteering, send an, uh, an email to info at signumu.org, uh, just to let us know that you'd be interested in volunteering. As I said, especially if you're like in the Orlando slash Tampa area, or if you're in the Seattle area, or if you're in New Zealand, uh, you know, that would be, uh, that would be especially cool. Um, but, uh, oh, so just to, to, uh, some, somebody was asking for, cause I did rip through the cities rather quickly. So the other places that we're, that we haven't, I'll, I'll give you the full list of places, either that we are definitely planning or places that, uh, uh, that we're kind of working towards. Um, and they are, let me see if I can do them all. Los Angeles, San Francisco Bay, Seattle, Texas, Denver, uh, Kansas City, I did forget that one. Yeah, Kansas City, um, Orlando, Tampa, uh, Tampa, Florida. I would love to do a Florida moot. Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, um, New England, Toronto, and then New Zealand and London are our two international uh, moots. So, um, anyway, uh, yeah, so you know, Yana, I wonder. I wonder if we might. Uh, it's one thing that we've we've already done. So, for instance, the uh, Kansas City moot this year. That's our our Midwest moot, which is kind of migrating a little bit. We were in Iowa last year, uh, which was really neat, and you know, people were able to come from bunches of different directions. We're sort of migrating down to Kansas City this year. Um, uh, so some of our um, uh, some of our our other. Uh, um, our other moots might, uh, you know, as as they go into their annual cycles, they might kind of uh, shift around from one city to another in a, in a region. So, uh, so see, Jim, it's not impossible. Maybe the maybe the southeast one will will uh, uh, shuffle down to Atlanta at some point. Who knows? Um, you're right, C- Curtis. Toronto, of course, is international as well. Here, I, I'm not giving it credit for being one of our international uh, moots, but. Um, Anyway, yeah, so it would be cool. So, so Yana, maybe maybe next year our European moot can migrate down towards Amsterdam or something. That'd be that'd be neat. That'd be neat. We'll see. We'll see what we can do. Um, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, so that's the plan. So let me know if any of you guys would be interested in doing that. You know, most of those are actually on the schedule. Are 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 likely to happen. We're looking at holding eight, at least eight different regional moots. 
uh, in this calendar year, in 2018, and then expanding to something like 10 to 12 uh, in 2019. So uh, it's been a really exciting time as we've been getting those together. And again, I just... uh, I just can't wait for uh, the opportunity to uh, be traveling around and seeing everybody. I've had such a good time at the regional moots we've done so far. Okay, and one last announcement, relatively quick quick announcement, and this is actually focused for MythMoot, and it's targeted especially at people who have already signed up for MythMoot. Um, just to point out, uh, this is our MythMoot event page, which you, if you've signed up already, you've probably seen before. MythMoot, gonna be awesome. John Garth, Douglas Anderson, Mark Ockren, inventor of Klingon. It's gonna be great. But... Um, uh, the main thing I want to draw your attention to is the lodging bit at the bottom. We have a link now for registering for rooms. Uh, there's been a kind of a delay in registering for rooms. I strongly recommend if you're coming to Mythmoot that you do uh, uh, book a room at the venue. Um, the the discount rate that they have is way cheaper than you'll find at almost any hotel competitor in the area. And uh, and anyway, like all the cool kids are staying on campus and you'll be able to uh, to, to kind of be right there and uh, right in the middle of everything. I, I, I loved that element of this venue last year. It was my favorite part. So um, anyway, I uh, just wanted to draw everyone's attention to that. And again, if you've not checked it out, if you've not looked at the uh, MythMoot 5 uh, stuff, MythMoot 5 is going to be absolutely awesome. Leesburg, Virginia, 21st to 24th of June, uh, our big annual conference of the year. So, um, uh, anyway, um, so, yeah, Arthur, you can totally hang with the cool kids. I saw that you registered this afternoon, Arthur. That was cool. I saw that come in. I was excited. Uh, Looking forward to meeting you guys. Uh, in person again, I know I've met you before, but it'll be uh, it'll be cool to uh, spend the weekend there. All right, so let's um, that's it, that's it. Those are all my announcements. Let's get to the text here. So, um, all right. So uh, in from the treason of Isengard, uh, Christopher Tolkien leaps straight into the War of the Ring with very little preamble. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about chapter one, which is where he's kind of going through the chronology thing. Chapter one seems to be basically Christopher Tolkien's explanation for why he's not gone. I mean, one of the major things, of course, that you can see, especially if we compare back to The Return of the Shadow, right? One of the things you notice when you look at the table of contents of The War of the Ring is that it proceeds in what looks like a really linear fashion, right? Sort of one chapter at a time, marching its way kind of pretty much through the text of the plot of The Lord of the Rings, right? Now, partly, of course, that's because the 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 story is in a different kind of place than it was before, right? In The Return of the Shadow, when uh, the whole thing was a a brand new adventure, and I don't mean Bingo's adventure, I mean Tolkien's adventure, right? Not even knowing what he was writing or where it was going at all. Um, but um, but anyway, you know, you'll remember in The Return of the Shadow, we kept we got all those phases, right? And we'd follow the narrative from the beginning, you know, from chapter one all the way through up to where Tolkien stopped and then started again, and then we go through and do it again, and then we go through and do it again. Um, you notice that Christopher Tolkien's not doing that anymore. And so that, that first chapter is where he primarily explains just basically that it's kind of too complicated to do that. And so much of the revision, of Tolkien's revision, is driven by the need to coordinate the... Uh, 
um, to maintain the consistency of his storylines and to coordinate the timelines, right? Because there are so many different elements. Um, you know, often we sort of think about the the ways that the, the the big splits of the story, right? You know, the 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 company that goes out into Rohan and then Frodo and Sam go. So we get the book three stuff and the book four stuff, right? As Frodo and Sam go to Mordor, while the rest of the company is in Rohan doing big things. And then, of course, it further splits when we get into Book 5, right, in the first half of The Return of the King, you know, where we've got Merry with the Rohirrim, and we've got uh, we've got Pippin and Gandalf down in Minas Tirith, and, of course, we've got Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli kind of off the radar for a long time, right, down, as they are traveling the path of the dead and coming up from the south. And, and of course, still, while all that's going on, we still have Frodo and Sam uh, going to Mordor. So... Um, that, but of course, it's not even we're not even anywhere near there yet. Long before there, as Christopher Tolkien is illustrating in chapter one, um, he's having an issue, uh, issues just balancing everything that we, you know, even just like what's supposed to be going on at Isengard, right? What the Ents are doing when the when the Huorns get to Helm's Deep and when they get back to Isengard and how quickly uh, Theoden and the and uh, Aragorn and Gandalf and the Rohirrim get to what will eventually be called Helm's Deep. Um, so, you know, all that stuff, all that stuff is, um, uh, Christopher says, was really the driving force behind a lot of Tolkien's revisions here. So instead of trying to do the whole thread, you know, uh, in uh, in regular waves, the way that he gave it earlier on, he's just kind of giving it to them. Uh, um, uh, he's just kind of giving it to us in... Uh, um, uh, chunks, right, and walking us through the different revisions and not... So, on the one hand, we kind of lose something here, right? Um, and Christopher acknowledges that and sort of apologizes for that, but I want to—I do want to kind of pause for a second to acknowledge what we're losing, right? And what we're losing is that that sense of horizontal layers that we could get. And I did really enjoy that. I, I, I was very interested, especially in the early stages. Um, but even at the later stages, too, even in The Treason of Isengard, seeing um, where, okay, like, at this moment, right, you know, at this particular moment in Tolkien's development of the story, what is the story that he's seeing, right? Um, and how is it different from the story that he's left behind? And, you know, what haven't we added yet, right? Um, but, you know, I know that Christopher talks about the... Um, he talks explicitly about how it would take way, way too much space to try to present this material in that way. But also, he kind of acknowledges, though he doesn't emphasize quite as much, that it's also really kind of impossible. I mean... Tolkien's manuscripts are such a mess um, because when Tolkien revised them, he tended to do things like write in pen on top of the penciled manuscript that he'd already written, right? And 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 also like just go in and add bits here and there and cross out names and change them to something else. And it's often really hard to tell what changes go with what. And so the idea that we can, I. I what I'm saying is, I think it's just as well that um, that Christopher's kind of abandoned that because it does seem at this point uh, like it's uh, it's it's kind of too difficult uh, to really maintain that in any kind of really plausible way. Um, and you know, maybe not, maybe not. I think um, uh, I think that it's. Um, uh, I mean, who knows? 
you know, maybe somebody could uh, do some even more amazing work with the manuscripts. But still, I think that this is uh, this is pretty defensible. So, anyway, um, having sort of acknowledged that, let's look at the Battle of Helm's Deep and how it emerges. Because I don't know about you, but I thought the Battle of Helm's Deep, as it was described in the earlier drafts, was awesome. I love the original Battle of Helm's Deep, actually. Um, and I have to say, there is... Um, there's, there are a bunch of things from the original Helm's Deep that I am really kind of sad didn't make it into the published text. I really, really, uh, I really would, uh, would have liked to see some of those things retained, but we'll, um, We'll get to that. It is far more detailed in military tactics. You are absolutely right. Um, It's one of the things that I found so striking about it. Um, And it's interesting to me because it's clear that Tolkien was himself kind of interested in the military tactics, right? We can you can see this. You can see this, especially you know, you can see it really, really clearly in unfinished tales, right? Read the description of the disaster at the Gladden Fields, right? The 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 Elendil's battle uh, with the orcs. Uh, he is very interested in the tactical situation. And not only that, but in sort of like the standard tactical uh, uh, doctrines of the Numenorians in battle, right? We get so much of that in that book. Or even more so, uh, his description of the Battle of the Fords of Eisen, um, also in Unfinished Tales, right? When we get the much more detailed description. So, um, uh, so Yana, that's, that is, it is, it's, it's interesting to see he does think that way, right? He does like, but, but you're right that in most of his published work, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. Um, and his battles, um, you know, the battles in The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings are pretty famously bare of, you know, tactical discussion generally. Um, so yes, uh, the the original, um, uh, did I say did I say it wrong, Tony? Uh, Isildur, of course, is what I meant at the Battle of Gladdenfield. I, I think Tony was correcting me. Probably, I probably said it wrong. Um, but anyway, yeah. So it, it is uh, uh, it is interesting that the original Battle of Helm's Deep was so much more um, so much more tactically uh, uh, detailed. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, okay. So let's um, let's. Let's look at how this developed. We got through, at the end of the Treason of Isengard, we just got through the King of the Golden Hall, right? We got the, the liberation of, of Theoden uh, from the influence of Wormtongue uh, and of Saruman. And uh, so we have one of the things that strikes me right away about the narrative that we see is that the first thing, the first thing, clearly, that Tolkien has worked out is the story, right? He has the overall plot. Everything else is still fluid, right? Everything from big picture geography to names to pol- you know, the sort of political history of Rohan, all of these things are in flux, right? But the one thing he has is the story. Because, of course, we see that, we, we, we recognize these major points right away. Theoden, uh, with Aemir and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Gandalf, right, riding off 
to the east, but they're not heading straight up towards Isengard, right? They're heading off uh, to the east, and then they meet the one soldier, right, in this exchange that uh, uh, that he has with uh, with Amir, but of course with then with Theoden. Um, and then they end up in, in Helm's Deep. Like, the overall outline of the story is almost exactly the same as it's going to be. That that seems to have really emerged fair, fairly, uh, uh, fairly fully formed for him. And what we see happening is the world building going on around the story, right? So, uh, look, um, look what I mean here. He came, a weary man with dented helm and cloven shield. Slowly he climbed from his horse and stood there a while, panting. At length he spoke. Is Aemir here? he asked. You come at last, but too late and too few. Things have gone evilly since Theodred fell. We were driven back over the bend of the Eisen with great loss yesterday. Many perished at the crossing. Then at night fresh forces came over the river against our camp. All Isengard must be emptied, and the wizard has armed the wild hillmen and scattered folk of Westfold, and these also he loosed upon us. We were overmastered. The shield wall was broken. Trumbold changed to Herolf, changed to Herolf, the West Marcher, has drawn off those he could gather towards his fastness under Tintoras. Others are scattered. Where is Eomir? Tell him there is no hope ahead. He should return to, to Eodorus, which it still was, before the wolves of Saruman come there. Um, so, yeah, Tony says, plot first, then characters, then themes. Yeah, pl- sir, plot first, right? Um, even the geography is filling in around it. Notice there's no Dunland yet, right? The wild men live in Westfold. Uh, Westfold is not yet a part of the mark. That's pretty clear. Uh, the The name Dunland is sometimes used, though Christopher says it's often inserted in maps and and uh, and in the margins and stuff to suggest that it's a late uh, it's a late name. It's it's sort of, it's it's a late concept. Throughout this, it's it's Westfold, which is the home of the wild men, the men who have been displaced. Uh, by the men of the mark and the men who hold this grievance, which Saruman has inflamed and recruited them uh, to be his uh, to be his allies. But notice even just the the sort of I don't know kind of looming political situation that Tolkien seems to be imagining, even just with the title Herolf the West Marcher, right? Uh, he. On the one hand, of course, that means he who is in the West March, right? The the western border of the Mark, uh, which is clear enough, right? Um, but given that the wild men are their wild hillmen and scattered folk in the Westfold, the West Marcher is a pretty important position, right? And the, you know this idea that he is the one who uh, he's the one who marches in the West, right? He is the uh, the one who's job is to, he takes the West March and he makes it an action. Like, it, it, it's an action, right? Be, being in the West March, that's an active role, right? It's not just, uh, it's not just a, 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 you know, a spot, right? It's a career, being the West Marcher. Uh, and, uh, and, and you can sort of see that conflict um, much more, uh, um, much more, much more kind of interestingly here. Um, but we don't get, there's still a lot of stuff that we don't really understand the geography. Where are they going exactly? Right? So, uh, 
Trumbold or Heorolf or whoever, the West Marcher, um, has a fastness under Tind Taurus. Okay, so that's a mountain in the Black Mountains. The White Mountains are still the Black Mountains, right? So the you've got the Black Mountains in the south and the Misty Mountains and the Gap of Rohan is between them. Um, Isengard is up on the Misty Mountain end of the Gap of Rohan, so they're down on the southern end. They're on the opposite side of the Gap um, uh, from, uh, from Isengard, as in the published text and with the published map as well. Um, but okay, so we've got some kind of a fastness there. Um, let's, uh, let's see. And Tony, that's a fantastic question. Uh, Tony is wondering whether the wolves of Saruman are literal or metaphorical. I think they're literal because there's reference to wolf riders, uh, still, uh, around in this text. So I, I think it is literal. Um, but, uh, but it's a great question actually, because wolf is used metaphorically just for, like, outlaws and brigands um, very frequently in Anglo-Saxon. That's a, um, that's a very common uh, thing. I mean, that's where, that's where, I mean, you, if you've read, for instance, the, um, uh, the Children of Hurin, either the Unfinished Tales version of the, the Narnihin Hurin or the, or the, the more recently published Children of Hurin, illustrated by Alan Lee, um, you may remember the Gauradine, right? The wolfmen. Um, and they're just called that because they're brigands. Uh, they're wanderers and brigands uh, who prey upon uh, people like wolves. Um, so that's a very common uh, uh, thing. So it is interesting, Tony. It's I, I, There do seem to be literal wolves about. Um, and yet, I'm not sure that that... Uh, that when the guy says this before the wolves of Saruman come there, I'm not sure that he's thinking of the wolves actually uh, when he says that. Um, I think that's a great point. All right. Um, Forward they rode again, urging on their horses. Suddenly Gandalf spoke to Shadowfax, and like an arrow from the bow, the great horse sprang away. Even as they looked, he was gone. A flash of silver in the sunset, a wind in the grass, a shadow that fled and faded from sight. For a while, Snowmane and the horses of the king's guard strained in pursuit, but if they had walked, they would have had as much chance of overtaking him. "'What does that mean?' said Hama to a comrade. "'Ever he comes and goes unlooked for.' "'Wormtongue, were he here, would not find it hard to explain,' said the other. "'True,' said Hama. "'But for myself I will wait till we see him again.' "'If we ever do,' said the other." Um, now, of course, there is a there there is a remnant of this exchange in the published text, but notice the significance of this in the uh, in this text, right? Um, first of all, the first major difference between this and the published text with which we're familiar is Kendolf doesn't say anything. He just takes off, right? And they're riding together. I mean, this is not like they're stopped and then he just takes off. Like, they're all riding, and then Gandalf suddenly says something to Shadowfax, and then, boom, he's off, right? And the other horses are trying to keep up. They're like, trying, but they just fall back and they can't do anything, right? Um, yeah, Josiah, Gandalf is not a tame wizard. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, the inexplicability of Gandalf's action, right? Um, what I'm interested in here is not necessarily asking why would Gandalf do this? Why would not Gandalf do what he end, ends up doing in the published text, right? Which is actually uh, turning to Theoden and explaining and saying, all right, I'm going to go 
Uh, I'll meet you at Helm's Deep. Um, uh, he just he just takes off, right? Um, and uh, John, yeah, spontaneity is a good word to use to describe it. John, that seems uh, that seems perfectly uh, 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 perfectly just. Um, and uh, I. Again, to me, the most the interesting thing here is not just trying to figure out why Gandalf would act like this. Um, uh, it just, I actually, I kind of feel like your answer is, is uh, it satisfies me, right? Gandalf is not a tame wizard, right? Uh, Gandalf Greyhame has has uh, has has need of haste, right? So off he goes. Um, he doesn't need to explain his his business to anybody. Rather, the emphasis. Um, the, the the significance of Gandalf's departure and the emphasis of the passage is the need of the Rohirrim to have faith in Gandalf. Right? This is a. I'm not saying that Gandalf is deliberately testing their faith, but this situation becomes a test of their faith, and that's indeed what we see dramatized. And interestingly, not in Theoden, right, or in Aemir, or one of the leaders, um, but just in two comparatively minor figures, right, Hama and some unnamed dude. Right, the unnamed dude certainly a very minor figure. Hama, not uh, not completely obscure, but not one of the captains. Right. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah. So so this is a situation. The, the situation here looks easily fishy. Right. What is he doing? Is he betraying them? Is he leaving? Is he fleeing? Right? Maybe he's running away. Maybe he's saving himself and leaving them all to die. Um, the the thing that the unnamed comrade says here, Wormtongue, were he here, would not find it hard to explain, is really, I think, is very well said. Right? Because it's it's not even that he's putting a particular turn on it. Right? It's not that he's interpreting it in a particular, uh, 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 you know, unattractive way. He's just pointing out really about how easy would it be for Wormtongue to make hay out of this situation, right? I mean, it's easy to come up with any one of several really unattractive um, uh, explanations for why Gandalf is acting this way. Um, and yet, in the face of that, uh, really, indeed, it's much more... Uh, it's much easier to explain it negatively than positively, really. Um, it's easier to lose the faith in Gandalf than to keep faith in Gandalf. Um, but Hama remains steadfast. And here Hama seems to be, I wouldn't call him the voice of the people, but he does seem to be the voice of his master, right? He's this is, you know, he's like the little voice of Theoden here. We don't need to hear from Theoden here. We, we, hearing from Hama is enough, I think. Um, and... Uh, uh, Brandon and Arthur are both interested in the reference to uh, Wormtongue in the sense that Arthur was saying, is it, um, you know, are we supposed to hear that Wormtongue is actually popular with the common soldier here? Um, you know, I don't know if that's what we're supposed to be understanding, that, that there is some kind, of, um, uh, uh, some kind of popular support for Wormtongue. I mean, on the one hand... Uh, um, on the one hand, I would say that um, logically speaking, worm tongue can't have been entirely uh, like universally suspected and hated by everybody. He can't have been. 
He can't have been. If he had been, he never would have succeeded, right? Um, he has to have had some kind of power, not just over the king, right? Um, because as the king was failing, um, he would need the support of others um, to keep somebody like Aemir and Theodrid from stepping in. Right, so there has—I mean, so logically speaking, there has to have been a worm-tongued faction uh, in Rohan. I mean, I, I can't—I can't imagine that there wouldn't have been that. Um, uh, Lynn is wondering if he's misled the populace as he misled the king. Well, Lynn, that's exactly the thing to keep in mind, right? I mean, he's called Wormtongue, um, and that's not just an insult. Remember, and I, I know I've said this many times, but remember that Wormtongue doesn't, is, 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 you know, G- Gandalf will make a joke about him being a witless worm, um, but he's not a worm tongue in the sense of an earthworm. He's a worm t- tongue in the sense of a dragon tongue. And dragons are, of course, very persuasive. Uh, remember that dragons tend to have rather overwhelming personalities. And it is in that sense that Grima is called the worm tongue. Um, I think that that nickname, um, it's, a, it's critical the people who despise him clearly they call him that right and mean no good by it um but they mean no good by it because of the often wicked hearts and intentions of dragons right but at the same time there is a kind of acknowledgement of his power in that right to say that he has the tongue of a worm is a compliment it's not a moral kind it's not a compliment to his character right but it is a compliment to his powers to his abilities right um he has to be um he has to be taken seriously right um and so yeah josiah his whispers were not for theoden's ears alone we know that right and of course uh, as gandalf suggests later on in the houses of the healing um eowyn also has been influenced uh by wormtongue right and it's not to, now we know that she is a particular target of Wormtongue, just as Theoden, and for a different reason than Theoden was. Um, but there is no reason to think that uh, there are, there aren't many people in Rohan, even again like masses of people, who have not uh, come under the the um, the sway of the power of his voice, right? The power of his persuasion. Um, and Kate, you're absolutely right that Theoden even does afterwards um, uh, acknowledge the, the wisdom of, uh, of Grima as a counselor. Um, he, he was revealed to be faithless, but again, that doesn't, you know, he still says, I miss both my counselors, right? The old and the new. Uh, I mean, he, he, he acknowledges that it, Grima wasn't just rubbish as a counselor, right? Um, he was wise. He was good. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, Carrie, exactly. Carrie Gross says he infiltrated an entire palace of warriors and strategists. He can't have been unlikable. No, definitely not. Um, definitely not. Again, I, I think that this is something that if we could just kind of imagine Grima as just this outside figure coming in and, and having this, you know, sort of putting the king in this thrall, right, into this thraldom, and then, you know, using that to, you know, I think, you know, for instance, the the sort of, like, the, the decree that Theoden 
I'm thinking of the film here, right? Um, how, you know, in, in the movie version, the king issues a decree banishing Aemir, right? Which is like this very transparent, um, this very transparent, uh, 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 you know, stratagem on Grima's part. And he's just, you know, baldly exerting his own power over his rivals through Theoden, right? That wouldn't... There's a reason Wormtongue didn't try to banish Aemir, right? It wouldn't have worked. Aemir wouldn't have gone uh, had it been... uh, We we saw... We see in the book, he threatens death to Grima in the hall, right? Uh, With much less provocation uh, than uh, than he would have had uh, had Grima had him beaten up and then banished, as he does in the film. Um, So... um, so yeah, yeah. John Caldwell is thinking of uh, similarities between Wormtongue and Rasputin. That's actually a really interesting comparison. Um, I do think that. I mean, I'm not saying that they're exactly the same, but um, but yeah, I, I think there are definitely some uh, some apt parallels between the two. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Tony, he probably was not some kind of hunchbacked weirdo either. I I, I agree. Um, I, I think I I would imagine. Um, I mean, I totally get why they did what they did uh, in the film with uh, with Wormtongue. Um, but um, but if it were me, like if the Amazon people asked me how how they should depict Wormtongue in their version, I would depict him as as gorgeous and charismatic. I I mean, I think that he should be. Uh, that he should be a heartthrob, frankly. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Jim, yeah, that's another really interesting comparison. Iago is another really interesting comparison. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, Rachel says he should look fairer and feel fouler. Um, yep, I agree. That's just how I would. That's just just how I would make him. And I agree, Nancy. The only detail we're told is that he had a pale, wise face. Right? Okay, pale but hot. Right? I, I, I'm fine with that. I think we can make that work. Ah, oh, I see. Uh, 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 demigod there on uh, Twitch is comparing Wormtongue to uh, uh, Lord Peter Baelish uh, in Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, more so. I mean, I think uh, <clears throat> I think he's um, uh, closer to he's closer to Rasputin than to Littlefinger. But but yeah, I mean that that same kind of uh, uh, same kind of category. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jennifer Pope wants to cast Kenneth Branagh as Wormtongue. I'm down. I'm down. Right? I mean, imagine Kenneth Branagh being able to put worm tongue, you know, Grima worm tongue, uh, you know, next to uh, his other appearances. That'd be that'd be that'd be fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, all right. But anyway, so back to relevance here. I don't think that the comment about Wormtongue that Hama's unnamed companion makes necessarily means that he's a totally in Wormtongue's camp, right? I don't think that that's that we must interpret it that way. Um, he could simply be saying, you know, he's he is clearly uh, the the voice of well, I was going to say caution, but 
it's not exactly caution, right? Um, he's the voice of, I don't know what, I guess, uh, uh, I don't know, negativity. Um, yeah, Stephen says he's not so much pro-Wormtongue as anti-Gandalf. Yeah, skepticism, that's fair. Yeah, skepticism. He's the voice of skepticism, right? And he just points out, Wormtongue would not find it hard to explain. Right. Um, and I think that even, you know, the, the hint there is like you wouldn't have to be worm time. Right. Like, uh, uh, yeah, it, it needs no worm tongue to uh, come up with an explanation, which looks pretty bad for Gandalf here. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Um, And Gandalf is a wizard. Kate, that is a really wonderful point. Um, if there's one thing that the people of Rohan have now fully understood, it's that the wizard is their enemy, right? Um, and how far can they trust this other wizard guy? Right? They don't know him. He, they've seen him sometimes, right? But he's not had a great reputation. And he has delivered Theoden, apparently delivered Theoden, right? But of course, again, uh, uh, Wormtongue would not find this hard to explain, right? What has he actually done? Oh, wait, what he actually did was lure Theoden out with not an overwhelming military force into the open field into the, in the middle of the night uh, against a superior force and then abandon them, right? I mean, you could do a... It doesn't take much to think of a, uh, 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 you know... Gandalf is to Theoden and his army here what Gollum was to Frodo and Sam in Shelob's lair, right? You know, he's just leading them into a trap and then taking off, you know, once uh, the trap has been sprung. That could easily be how this looks, right? Um, even, of course, Yana, as you say, acknowledging the fact that the two wizards, like, look alike. They're, they're very... Um, uh, Easy to it's easy to think that the two of them are 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 working together, um, and uh, yeah, Yana, could they even be the same person? Right? I mean, they, one could imagine one of the Rohirrim wondering that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, and Tony, as you say, they don't have a lot of trust in magic and magical things anyway. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Jim, of course, Jim is pointing out the obvious fact that and he's a white wizard, right? Uh, so he is uh, he's Saruman's replacement, right? Except I'm your friend. I, you can totally trust me. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, those are all very, uh, very important. Cons- but anyway, so just notice in this passage how those things are, how much more those issues are emphasized, right? How much... Uh, Deeper in doubt, or at least in potential doubt, the Rohirrim are left here, right? And obviously one of the consequences of this, it's going to mean that the final return of Gandalf and the miraculous shift at the end of the battle uh, with the appearance of the wood, uh, the wizardry, as everyone is going to call it, is going to look far more dramatic, right? The, uh, the vindication of faith is going to be uh, far more extreme in this version, um, so it's it's interesting that that th- to to emphasize that was one of uh, one of Tolkien seems to be one of Tolkien's first impulses here. All right.
The scouts rode back and reported that wolf riders were abroad in the vale. See, there's our literal wolves. And that a host of orcs and wild men, very great indeed, was hastening southward over the plain to gain the gates of the of the Nerwet. The Nerwet, it means narrow opening, right? So uh, um, it just means the opening of the of the of the deep, right? Of the clue. All right. Uh, we have found some of our men slain as they fled, said one of the scouts, and scattered companies we have met going this way and that, leaderless. But many are making for Herolf's hold, and they say that Herolf is already there. We had best not give battle in the dark, nor await the day here in the open, not knowing the number of the coming host, said Aemir, who had ridden up to the king's side. What is your counsel, Aragorn? To drive through such enemies as are before us, and encamp before the Nerwit Gate, to defend if may be, while the men who have fought rest behind our shield. Okay. Um, yeah, Tony, I really like the, the term Nerwit as well. I don't know, maybe it's just me. Uh, there are some of the names associated here that Tolkien was trying out that I am not such a big fan of, but I like Nerwit. I, I, I kind of, I kind of enjoy that too. Um, but anyway, okay. So, uh, one thing, this is the first passage that I wanted to give to sort of illustrate one of the factors that I found most interesting about the first draft of the Battle of Helm's Deep. And that is, there is a much more of a sense of immediacy to it. Um, the Battle of Helm's Deep in the published text, a lot of it takes, like, it kind of divides between giving this big sort of overview description of the battle, right? You are kind of flying in a helicopter watching the movement of armies through a lot of the description that we get in the published Battle of Helm's Deep, especially in these early stages. Um, and the, that, of course, is sort of punctuated by these individual, you know, moments like, you know, Legolas and Gimli counting, or, uh, you know, Aemir and Aragorn's charge in front of the gate, or, uh, you know, the fight uh, with the orcs who have uh, crawled through the culvert, right? All, all of those things. Um, uh, so those sort of individual incidents... Uh, are kind of strung together to give us a sense of the flow of the battle, but a lot of the, what the narrator tells us is really focused on this like really, really big picture. Um, one of the impressions that I get much more powerfully in this early version of it is a much more kind of ground-level sense of like what it would have been like to be there at the Battle of Helm's Deep. So even here... Um, the fact that they are racing to the gates of the Nerwet in order to beat the enemy there. Like, where? what is the enemy doing? The enemy isn't coming after them. The enemy isn't just marauding, right, and burning everything. They, I mean, they are burning everything that they can find, but that's not just what they're doing, right? They're not just wandering about. Um, they are racing to get... They have a plan, right? Uh, they're hastening southward to gain the gates of the Nerwet. Because they know that's a stronghold. If they can get their army can get there first, then they can cut off the king and prevent him being able to hold himself up there, uh, th- uh, behind the Nerwet Gate, um, in the in the clue in the deep, right? Um, so they're trying to get there. Um, the uh, um, this 
fact that they might get trapped in the open in the dark, um, I never really feel that in the published text. Like, that there was a chance, had they not hastened, had they not made it, uh, they, uh, uh, they, they would have been cut off in the open. Um, there's even very little sense in the published text that they have a hard time finding their way in the dark. Right? The fact that it's a dark night is a huge factor which Tolkien keeps coming back to in these early drafts, right? Um, uh, he, uh, they, like they, the, the, when Theoden breaks them up into smaller companies and has each one of them guided by someone who is night-sighted uh, and someone who knows the land, right? Because, I mean, that's, that's the only advantage that they have, and that's why they split up, because they'll be able to move faster. And if they each have their own guide, uh, they're more likely to, to all make it uh, there in time uh, than if they're in this long, strung-out line, slowly getting there. They're, they're, they're going to get beaten to the Nerwet uh, by the enemy, and that would, sp- that would be catastrophe. They'd be caught in the open and cut to pieces. Um, and then that kind of thing kept going. Um, before we look at more of the tactical situation, though, look at the description. We, 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 we get the description another time here, uh, his description of the clue. Watch what happens the second time. On its further western side, the Tintoris, uh, the, the Tintoris, right, there are three peaks, were hidden in darkness. The Tintoris are what are called the, the, the three Hirn uh, in the published text. Anyway, uh, beneath their feet, or changed to beneath the peaks, some miles away lay the opening of the great cleft in the hills, which men of that land called Herolf's Clue. Changed to lay the green coombe, out of which opened a great cleft in the hills. Men of that land called it Helm's Deep, after some hero of ancient wars who had made his refuge there. Uh, so now notice uh, Herolf is shifting, right? Herolf was the West Marcher before, um, the like current captain of, uh, of the West March, whose fortress, whose current fortress, uh, whose current you know, place of power is there in the clue. Um, now uh, Tolkien is shifting to think maybe that guy, maybe Herolf, is a hero of old wars, a, a hero of ancient wars even. Right? Uh, so he seems to be kind of uh, uncertain which way to go there. Ever steeper and narrower it wound inward under the Tintoras, till the crow-haunted cliffs on either side towered far above and shut out the light, where it issued in the vale upon added Stanrock, an outjutting heel of land, was built the fastness of Helm's Gate. There Heorolf the marcher had his hold. So there are two things that we can see happening as he describes this and, and sort of continues to fill out the details of this. One is simply more precise detail, right? Now how we're getting the Nerwet, right? We get the opening, and then, you know, and then behind it, the, the sort of the fairly steep slope up, uh, you know, in the green comb. And then there's this outjutting heel of land, right, that comes out from the cliff, uh, and that's called the Stan Rock, right? And there's a fastness on top of that, and there's... There's the, the, the deeping wall, right? Not yet really quite clearly there. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, we're, we're, we're getting some more detail. But that's not the main thing that I find cool, 
right? The two things that seem to me most significant here are the way which, in which when he goes through this a second time, we get two really cool sort of mythic touches that we didn't get before. And you can begin to see Tolkien kind of fleshing out his imagination of this, right? Not just the the technical details, right? Not just the, the tactical situation, not just the geography, um, but the story, right? One is the hero of ancient wars. That's new, right? Um, so that this, you know, we're going to give this some... Uh, the, that there's going to be some kind of story, right? There's going to be some kind of mythic significance to this. Uh, long before he has any clue what the myth is, right? You know, uh, he's, he, you know, maybe it's Heorolf. Obviously, we have no idea who Heorolf really is yet, right? But what we know is there's going to be some kind of association with a hero of ancient wars, right? So some kind of mythic resonance gets added to it. And the other thing is what Mike and Nancy were both noticing there, the single word crow-haunted, Right, that's good. T- till the crow haunted cliffs on either side towered far above and shut out the light. Right, that is different. It's not only more detailed in its description. Right, it has a completely different flavor. Right. Um, so Tony, yeah, exactly. He's not just developing plot here. He's doing world building. Right. Um, we have him investing this place with a, a sort of a richness of imaginative associations that it did not have before, right? And it's really neat to watch some of those details, uh, to watch some of those details uh, happening. And yeah, Tony, the ominousness of crow haunted, right? The word haunted, right? Uh, And of course, as you suggest, Tony, um, the carrion crows are awaiting prey, right? So there's something deeply ominous about that. Um, Yeah, yeah. Megan, excellent. Uh, Megan Hamilton says that it's a, it's a safe place. That is, you know, it's it's a it's a, a strong refuge, right? But it's it's not a tame place, and it's also not a, a pleasant place, Megan. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. And no, Kate, we cannot be sure whether the ancient hero belongs to Rohan. Um, I mean, it, when he's called Harolf. He probably belongs to Rohan because it's a very Anglo-Saxon name. Helm is a little bit more ambiguous, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. And John, yes, good point. John points out that Crow Haunted also has a kind of an ominous link back to uh, to Saruman, right? Uh, and Saruman's crows and and Saruman's long spying out of the land, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Uh, more reports. We have found many of our own folk lying slain as they fled thither, said the scout, and we have men scattered, and we have met scattered companies going this way and that, leaderless. Some are making for the clue, changed to making for Helm's Gate, but it seems that not Helm, changed to Hairolf, is not there. His plan was changed, and men do not know whither he has gone. Some say that Wormtongue was seen today. Some say that change to, some say that Wormtongue was seen in the evening going north, and in the dusk an old man on a great horse rode the same way. Um, okay, first of all, I love the reports of the scouts as they come in. Again, we get these same reports of the scouts uh, later on, but um, the the cumulative effect of the text as it's presented in this first draft um, is much more, uh, I feel it captures that sense of 
the fog of war, right? They don't know what's happening. They don't know where the enemy is. They don't know what the plans are. They're just hearing these reports, right? Um, is their guy, right? Is the West Marcher? Is he there? Is there an army there? Are they on their own? Has he already been defeated? They have no idea, right? All they know is that they're meeting scattered companies, uh, and uh, uh, and the, you know they they keep hearing one thing and then another thing. Um, notice, by the way, the um, the reference to an old man on a great horse riding the same way, right? Again, notice how richly, delightfully ambiguous that is, right? Wormtongue would not find that hard to explain either. Uh Aha, see, look, where did he go? There went Gandalf, right? Gandalf left us behind in the dark, and where did he go? Straight to Isengard, right? Uh Uh-huh, right, showing his true colors. And what are his true colors? White wizard colors, that's what his true colors are, right? As if uh, he, he didn't even hide that, right? I mean, again, it's... The other guy's right. Worm tongue would not find it hard to explain, right? It, it, it certainly it would not take a worm tongue to, uh, um, uh, to to uh, to be able to to explain that. Um, you know, Tony, I, I I have to admit, I can't I can't help but think the same thing. Tony's wondering if not Helm uh, is a private joke. I don't know. I found that hilarious. That was the that was the part of this chapter that makes me laugh out loud. Calling him not Helm. So like, you know, Harolf, he's either the oh, the hero of the ancient wars or he's the current West Marcher, one or the other, and we keep waffling back and forth, right? Um but then we're thinking about naming the hero of the old wars Helm. So we're gonna name the guy who lives there now not Helm. <laughs> right? And I'm just like, okay, that's kind of fun. Right? I like that. Um, uh, I'm sure that Tolkien probably has good reasons for that, but, uh, um, (laughs) I, 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 it seems to me funny, Tony, but that might just be me. Um, uh, yeah, no, see, Timothy, I know it has a meaning, right? I mean, I, I know it's not just a joke. I know it's not just a joke. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's fun. It's still funny. I can't help it. It's still funny. Uh, I just have a puerile sense of humor, I suppose. Um, the description of the Stansgulf. I miss the Stansgulf. Can I, can we, can we make a vote, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to, to replace Helm's Dyke with the Stansgulf? because I really, that's what I want. But anyway, soon they could hear harsh singing, and if they turned and looked back, they could see, winding up from the low country, red torches, countless points of fiery light. The very wood of, a very wood of trees must have been felled to furnish them. Every now and then a brighter blaze leaped up. It is a great host, said Aragorn, and follows us close. They bring fire, said Aemir, and are burning as they come all that they can, all that they can kindle. Rick and cotton tree. We shall have a great debt to pay them. The reckoning is not far off, said Aragorn. Shall we soon find ground where we can turn and stand? 
"'Yes,' said Amir. "'Across the wide mouth of the comb, at some distance from Helm's Gate, "'there is a fall in the ground, so sharp and sheer, "'that those approaching, that to those approaching it seems as if they came upon a wall. "'This we call Stanshelf, or Stansgulf, changed to, changed somewhat disappointingly, to Helm's Dyke. "'In places it is twenty feet high, and on the top it has been crowned with a rampart of great stones, "'piled in ancient days. There we will stand.' Thither the other companies will also come. There are three ways that lead up through breaches in the cliff. These we must hold strongly. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, this, so, okay, so Megan, this is not the deeping wall. The deeping wall is behind. This is the, so in the book, in the published uh, Helm's Deep, right? There's Helm's Dyke, and then there's the Deeping Wall, right? And the Deeping Wall is a is a is a constructed stone wall, right? A laid stone wall. It's one with the culvert under it that gets blown up, right? Um, uh, and then the Hornberg is right at one end of it, right? Um, but the Dyke is a defense further down the way. It's basically this same this same thing, this cliff thing. Um, but it doesn't. Uh, but it doesn't have a rampart up on top of it. It's not that defensible, and it's quite long. Um, so yes, carry exactly. The the dike is an enhanced natural barrier. Um, it's uh, it's called a trench and rampart in uh, uh, in in the published text. So trench suggests that they've actually dug it right, so that it is uh, it is in fact uh, largely sort of uh, 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 man made, um, but. Um, uh, anyway, um, yeah, so, uh, anyhow, the deeping wall is a different thing, right? As for, so you've got the dike, you've got the dike in the front, and then the wall, and then the Hornberg sort of set up next to the wall, behind the wall. Um, but it's not at the deeping wall that they're going to make their stand. It's at the Stansgulf, which I will call it, um, because that's so much fun. Um, and so, yeah, Tony, what we get, uh, first is that this is really, it's a natural fortification, right? There's this, 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 this wall, it's just like a cliff face that they're defending. Um, and I think that's really cool. I think that's really fun. Um, the other thing that I like, I like the singing. Now we, we get the singing in the text. Most of those details are there in the published text, but again, um, remember, first of all, they've been separated into companies. They are not with the king. Aragorn and Aemir and Legolas and Gimli are together. Legolas is the night-sighted one who has been guiding them, right? And Aemir is the one who is the guy with local knowledge, because he's been there many times before. So uh, Aemir is able to guide them. Legolas is able to see for them, right? So the, it's Aemir and Legolas leading their company, uh, and they're one of the first to get there, because, you know, like, they're pretty good. Um, and uh, Legolas is pretty good night vision uh, compared to... Uh, compared to most of them. Um, but remember, they've all separated. They don't know... Now they don't know where the enemy is, and they don't know where the rest of their own squads are, right? They don't know where the rest of their own army is. Like, very fog of war. Very sort of realistic fog of war. And what we get is this description of what they can see and hear. They can hear the harsh singing, which is the singing of the enemy, I, I believe, right? This is the singing of the wild men and the orcs. 
um, and they can see the red torches, the countless points of fiery light. In the published text, we get another sentence describing that uh, in much more sort of beautiful detail. Uh, again, that kind of helicopter view of the army on the move. Uh, here instead, we get that this sort of delightfully foreshadowy sentence about how a very wood... Th- they had to have cut down like an entire wood to get as many uh, torches as they would need to carry. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, Aragorn's desire to find ground where we can turn and stand, and yes, there is going to be ground um, uh, where we can, where they can stand. It was dark, starless, and moonless when they came to the stun shelf, uh, came to Helm's Dyke. Aemir led them up by a broad, sloping path that climbed through a deep notch in the cliff and came out upon the new level some way beyond, behind the rampart. They were unchallenged. No one was there before them, friend or foe. At once Aemir set guards upon the breaches, changed to inlets. Ere long, other companies arrived, creeping up the valley from various directions. There were wide grass slopes between the rampart and the Stanrock. There they set their horses under such guards as could be spared from the manning of the wall. Gimli stood leaning against a great stone at a high point of the Stanshelf dike. Stanshelf changed to dike, not far from the inlet by which they had entered. Legolas was on the stone above uh, was on the stone above, fingering his bow and peering into the darkness. Um, okay. So can you picture this? Right? Can you picture the stun shelf? Uh the Stansgulf as it's uh, as it's described here. So you've got this so picture this wall, right? This this natural cliff. But there are three gaps in it. Um and, and those gaps are sloped, so they're, they're, they're cut in to the cliff. The, the change from breaches to inlets, by the way, which he does consistently all through this section, um, Christopher interprets that as suggesting, which seems to me very plausible, that what Tolkien was trying to emphasize, these are not breaches, makes it sound like it's just, it's just a gap or like a hole or something like that. But inlets suggest they're built. These are constructed. They're not just natural places where the cliff fails, right? But rather, there are three spots where uh, ground has actually been cut into the cliff to make a slope or a stair in order to climb up past the cliff, right? So you don't scale the cliff to get up over it. You have to go through one of the inlets, which slopes up more gently, but you see how this makes it extra defensible, right? Um, Because, so you've got the You've got the cliff here and the cliff top here, right? But the inlet cuts in underneath the cliff and comes out, you know, way up over here, right? Which means there's a like a cutting. You can you can throw stuff down on the people as they're coming up through the inlet, right? Uh, and that's how we're told that they fill it up with rocks. That's how you do it, right? You just chuck rocks down uh, from the top so you can defend the face of the wall as they if they as they try to get up the face and there's there are stone ramparts piled up on top of the rock to make it extra defensible and extra hard to get up but also as they try to force their way through the inlets uh, you can defend not only at the end right up on the up on the 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 the, the upper shelf the upper plane um, but you can defend it all, all along the way by shooting or throwing rocks down into the inlets um, so that's um, um, that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty fun, right? Um, 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Brian says, breaches sounds like a flaw while an inlet is a feature. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Brian, the only thing I would say is that in retrospect, three was probably too, too many, right? Probably better to have only the one inlet, right? Would have made it a little easier to defend. Uh, so a uh, little flaw on the part of uh, uh, the ancient uh, uh, folks who, uh, you know, constructed these defenses in the first place, but whatever. Um, so there are three of them. It's the, central, the, the, the center one, the north one, and the south one. Um, and the company has come in through the through the central uh, inlet, it seems. And uh, there's Gimli standing on a great stone at a high point of the stun shelf, not far from the inlet by which they had entered. So there he is standing up on top of the cliff, looking down. And these, of course, are the bones, the tough bones uh, that this land has, right? Um, so... Uh, and that actually really kind of that line makes even more sense in this in this context. Then we get the coolest part, right? So the the the, the squads of the Rohirrim are, are are coming and they, they they come and they find nobody there. The place is abandoned, right? Uh, so Harolf or uh, you know the who whatever his name is, the West Marcher isn't there. Right, uh, so they're on their own. So he's like, so Amir's like, this is where we turn and stand. We're going to defend this spot right here. Uh, this is where we begin to take that reckoning. But the king hasn't come yet. Remember, they separated, so the king is in his own squad with his knights, and uh, he has not shown up yet. And uh, they can hear there's fighting in the distance. And so Amir's going to take a squad of folks, and he's going to go back down uh, to uh, to to try to help the king and make sure that the king makes it up to the defenses. Um, and he's about to go and about to leave Aragorn in charge, which is interesting, right? He doesn't appoint one of the other marshals. He's like, hey, Aragorn, you, like, stranger from abroad, right? I'm going to leave you in charge of the defenses. And Aragorn, uh, very prudently, I think, disagrees. And he says, this errand I will take, said Aragorn. You are needed on the wall. Uh, so he, so, and, and this seems to me very sensible, right? Yeah, I, because what well, what happens if something happens to if Aramir goes to rescue the king and both of them fall right that's imprudent for several reasons right first of all Theodred's already dead right so uh, if the king is in peril how about we not send his heir like with a small you know if the king has been ambushed with a small group of people let's not send the heir with another small group of people to go try to bail him out how about we leave the heir up uh, behind the wall in command of the rest of the army, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe we should do that. Um, but what's more, I mean, Aragorn in command, I mean, sure, it's not that Aragorn is incapable and stuff, but uh, is everybody involved going to be cool with that, right? I think Aragorn recognizes you're, you're needed on the wall, right? I, you know, um, he has not really had time to earn the trust of the, 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 the common men in the army, right, in order to, to have him be actually in command. Um, yeah, exactly, Megan. They need somebody that they know. Um, but, uh, and anyway, this Aaron, I'm going to go rescue the king with a small group of people. Yeah, he feels pretty well equipped for that, right? Come, Legolas, your eyes will serve us. He sped down the slope. Where Legolas goes, I go, said Gimli, and ran after them. Um, that's totally, uh, uh, like, on uh, Gimli's, uh, you know, Twitter description. Anyway, uh, 
The watchers on the wall saw nothing for a while. Then suddenly there were louder cries and wilder yells. A clear voice rang, echoing in the hills. Elendil! It seemed that far below in the shadows a white flame flashed. Branding goes to war at last, said Eomir. Remember, that's the name of the sword, still called Branding. A horseman appeared before the main breach and was admitted. Where is Theoden King? asked Eomir. Among his guard, said the man, but many are unhorsed. We rode into an ambush, and orcs sprang out of the ground among us, hamstringing many of our steeds. Snowmane and the king escaped, for that horse is night-sighted, and sprang over the heads of the orcs. But Theoden dismounted and fought among his guard. Herogrim sang a song that has long been silent. I love that sentence. Oh, man, Herogrim sang a song that has long been silent. Oh, man, that is possibly... That is... That is on my short list of fam- favorite sentences that are cut out of the Lord of the Rings. Holy cow. Uh, anyway, right. Uh, okay, Aragorn is with them, and he sends word that a great host of orcs is on his heels. Man the wall. He will come in by the main breach if he can. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, First of all, how lovely is it to get to know Snowmane a little bit better, right? Uh, Snowmane uh, and his exceptional night vision. Uh, Snowmane, who alone escaped of all of the horses of the king's guard uh, by springing over the heads of the orcs, right? But then Theoden dismounts and comes back to, to, to fight among his guard who have been unhorsed, right? So he's going to dismount and fight on foot among them just because they're dismounted. I mean... That's awesome, right? So we get we get we get extra awesome detail of Snowmane, and then uh, uh, you know so that we're not meeting him for the first time in the Battle of Pelennor Field, and we've got Theoden acting you know not just bravely but uh, but but heroically and nobly, um, and absolutely, James, significant horsemanship on Theoden's part too to uh, to to to. Leap over the uh, the the heads of the orcs, uh, but then turn around and come back, right? And then here comes Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli on foot uh, to uh, uh, to to help to rescue everybody. Uh, this detail is uh, really uh, this this skirmish, right? The the ambush of the king um, in the published book, Theoden. Until his final charge, Theoden's whole time at Helm's Deep is kind of boring, right? I mean, that is for him, right? He shows up and they, they, he, you know, goes into the Hornburg and he watches the whole battle from a distance and he never sees any action until he decides he's going to charge, right? Which is awesome and that's great and everything. Um, but this is really cool. Uh, this is, um, uh, this is, this is super fun. Um, but wait. It gets even better. Oh, my goodness. So, the king's men are starting to come back, right? Through the main breach, 
They're starting to come in through the main breach, but the army is coming in right by them. The orcs are right there. At that moment, there was a wild cry. Orcs were attacking the breaches changed to inlets on either hand, and before the king had been brought into safety out of the darkness, there sprang a host of dark shapes, driving towards the great breach. A white fire shone. There in the path could be seen for a moment Aragorn, son of Arathorn. On his one side was Gimli, on the other Legolas. Back now, my comrades, cried Aragorn. I will follow. Even as Gimli and Legolas ran back towards the rampart, he leaped forward. Before the flame of branding, the orcs fled. Then slowly Aragorn retreated, walking backward. Even as he did so, step by step, one great orc came forward, while the others stalked behind him. As Aragorn turned at last to run up the inlet, the orc sprang after him, but an arrow whined and he fell sprawling and lay still. For some time no others dared to draw near. "'Sure is the shaft of the elven bow, and keen are the eyes of Legolas,' said Aragorn, as he joined the elf, and they ran together to the rampart. "'How, I know, Brandon, how epic is this, right? "'Oh, my goodness, this image of the whole army of orcs is charging up to the wall, "'and they're alone!' Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli as rear guard while the king is escaping right behind them. And then Aragorn tells Legolas and Gimli to go and he charges. And Aragorn alone charging downhill against the entire army of orcs charging uphill. And they scatter. They run. Right? Uh, I mean, oh man, this is incredible. Um... Yeah, Yana, this absolutely is Aragorn's you shall not pass moment. Yes. Um, Oh, my goodness. Uh, I just don't even know what else to say. This scene is so cool. This whole sequence, I really, uh, I really, I really just loved it. I really love it. Um, Now, of course, we're not going to lose this. Naturally, we're not going to completely lose this, right? As... um, you know, Tolkien almost never totally cuts anything, right? So, of course, you'll remember the sequence here is very like, um, is very like the scene, the sequence that we're going to get when they're returning up from the from the deeps, right? Um, after the blasting fire and the enemies in the deep, and and uh, Legolas is or and Aragorn remembers the last one up the stairs, and Legolas, you know, shoots the orc that's uh, just about to pounce on him and stuff. You know, it's that 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 scene is drawn right from is you know is this moment kind of transformed, but man, it is not the same effect. Um, this is just incredible. And then uh, Nancy. Another awesome snowmane moment, right? Thus at last the king's host was brought within the fastness, and turned to bay before the mouth of Helm's Deep. The night was not yet old, and many hours of darkness and peril yet remained. Theoden was unhurt, but he grieved for the loss of so many of the horses of his guard, and he looked upon snowmane bleeding at the shoulder. A glancing arrow had struck him. Fair is the riding forth, friend, he said, but often the road is bitter. Grieve not for Snowmane, lord, said Aragorn. The hurt is light. I will tend it, with such skill as I have, while the enemy still holds off. They have suffered losses more grievous than ours, and will suffer more if they dare to assail this place. Man, so not only we get we get the, the grieving of the king, uh, but he grieved for the loss of so many 
What of his knights? So many of his men? No, so many of the horses, right? The poor hamstrung horses. That's who he's grieving for. And then there's, boom, the hands of the king, right? The hands of the king and the, cans of a, uh, the hands of a hero are healing snowmane, right? Uh, here's the king worried about snowmane, and, and here's, you know, uh, Aragorn, who is just as good at hewing horses as he is at hewing hobbits. Oh, I mean, come on. How cool is this stuff? Uh, I guess I can see why he cut some of these things, but, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah. Anyhow. Let's keep going. Now, this is where the narrative kind of uh, shifts, right? Uh, Tolkien gets excited and uh, leaps ahead of this, right? Uh, he uh, leaps ahead of uh, sort of the narrative flow uh, by shifting into outline mode, right? And we've seen him do this before when the ideas really start to sort of tumble along, right? Um, so he shifts to outline mode. There is an attack. Endless numbers. Grappling hooks. Ladders. Piled slain. Riders block breaches with stones from high places and with bodies. Orcs keep on getting in. Um, by the way, and with bodies, I think this means, of course, the bodies of those that they have killed down below. I wonder if it also means the bodies of those who have come up on the cliff that they have killed and they're chucking the bodies down, uh, too. Um... Orcs keep on getting in. Riders lose few men, most at breaches. Orcs once got near the horses late in the night. Because remember, the horses are up, but they're 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 in front of the deeping wall, but they're behind the uh, th the stun shelf, right? Late in the night, the waning moon shone fitfully, and the defenders see a boiling throng beneath the wall. Slowly, the dead were piling up. Wild men in steel mesh forced the north breach, and turning south began to drive men from the rampart. Orcs clamber over. Dawn sees the men of Rohan giving way all along. The horses are taken away to Helm's Deep with the king. They make a shield wall and retreat slowly up towards the Stanrock. So they've been driven back, their, their defenses have been taken, so they form a shield wall, and they're slowly withdrawing back. And the, that sense of the rising tide of the orcs, right? They've put up this amazing defense. They've killed heaps and heaps and heaps of the enemies such that the, uh, the piles of the dead have themselves become defensive fortifications, right? Uh, and yet the enemy has still managed to, to not quite overwhelm them, right? But to, um, uh, but to finally reach the top of the wall. But there they are, not in retreat, right? There's no route as they form a, 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 a shield wall and slowly, step by step, are retreating up towards Helms. They're not even up at the Hornburg, which is not called the Hornburg yet, right? They're not even up to, uh, uh, to, to, to Helms Deep. Um, to the main wall, right? They're, they're retreating up towards that. Um, and they're not even going to get that because it's going to be dawn uh, soon. The sun comes out and then all stare, defenders and attackers. A mile or so below the dike, from north to south in a great crescent, they behold a marvel. Men rubbed their eyes, thinking that they dreamed or were dizzy with wounds and weariness. Where all had been upland and grass-clad slopes, there stood withered leaves. And like ancient oaks with tangled boughs and gnarled pines stood dark among them. 
the orcs gave back. The wild men wavered, crying in terrified voices, for they came from under the wood, under the west sides of the misty mountains. At that moment from the Stanrock a trumpet sounded. Forth rode Theoden with his guard, and a company of Harolf's men? They, they charged down, crashing into the wild men, and driving them back in ruin over the cliffs. Wizardry is abroad, said something men... So, just to make sure everyone remembers, I know those of you who have been following the series will know this already, but for those of you who are new, uh, the, the square brackets with the question mark at the beginning it means Christopher can't be sure what the word is. It's a manuscript word that's, that's almost illegible, and he's guessing at what it what might possibly be, but he's not sure. Um, when he just leaves dots is when he, he can't even give a safe guess. What can this betoken? Wizardry maybe, said Aemir, but it seems not to be any device of our enemies. See how dismayed they are. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Carrie, you're right. Carrie is uh, 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 comparing the... Uh, uh, the the reference to the cutting down of the forest to make torches uh, to the uh, to the to the to the unfired pistol on stage right as we finally uh, we finally turn back uh, to the the revenge of the wood who has come um, there is a reckoning right think about how those references come together right there is a reckoning but it is not just a reckoning uh, to be exacted by the men of Rohan but a, but a, a there is shockingly surprisingly a reckoning uh that is uh uh that is dealt out by the forest uh from whom all those torches were cut right that's um uh that's that's pretty cool um notice also so the of Harolf's men possibility there um Theoden's charge so remember, the king was taken in. So as the shield wall is formed, all of the Rohirrim, all of Theoden's, you know, the remnant of Theoden's army here, and remember, not many of them have died, right? And it's said that they've, you know, they're being pushed back, but there have been few casualties. How is it that, uh, that, that, he, that he put it? Um, uh, what does he say? Oh, I'm forgetting there. Yeah, riders lose few men, most at breaches. Yeah, so some are killed at the at the at the breaches at the inlets, but um, uh, but 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 there aren't many. So we're, we're, this is not a, a great slaughter of the Rohirrim, right? It's just the overwhelming of their defensive fortification. But as they're being pushed back, so the horses are sent inside and the king with them, right? So the king and the horses are on the inside. So the effect that we create here, right, is two things at once. The dawn comes, and there are two sudden and unexpected strokes. All of the defenders are still currently engaged with the orcs, right? They're forming the shield wall, right? So, um, reinforcements really did not seem in the cards, right? And then all of a sudden, the valley behind them is full of a forest that wasn't there the day before, right? And that's really freaky. And then... 
forth rode Theoden with his guard and a company of Harolf's men. I think that the the point of it being a company of Harolf's men is it's like unexpected reinforcements, right? So there's a presumably Aragorn, Aemir, Gimli, Legolas, Hama, and all the rest of them are still uh, fighting in the shield wall, right? And then here comes Theoden, whom they thought they were like, well, we kept Theoden safe in with the horses, right? And now here he comes charging out with extra guys, right, who were... I guess, what, hanging out up there in the tower, right? Because they, remember, they, they never even made it. Like, Aemir, and they've never, they haven't even been to the tower. <laughs> they didn't make it that far. They just made it as far as the, as the stun shelf and, and have been holding off the enemy from there. Um, so um, we get the kind of double you catastrophe, right? The sudden and unexpected assault of, uh, of Theoden leading a charge with men that they didn't even know that they had, and you know, coming down from the top, and then of course the forest in the valley, the wizardry, uh, and uh, and again, even the whole fog of war thing, right? This sense of wizardry is abroad. What can this be token? They don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, right? Um, and that moment of doubt, like everyone's freaked out, but it's not obvious that this is a good thing. That's happened here. All these ancient oaks with tangled boughs and gnarled pines standing darkly among them. That might not be good, right? Um, but Amir points out this is clearly not a device of our enemies, right? Uh, they are extremely dismayed. Okay, a couple notes that Tolkien goes on to write. Their horses were often night-sighted, that is, the Rohirrim's horses, uh, but the men were not so night-sighted as the orcs. Rohan had a disadvantage in dark. As soon as it grows light, they are able to fight. The orcs are no match for the horsemen on the slopes before the Stanrock. Sorties from Helm's Deep and Stanrock. Orcs dive back over the wall. It is then that the wood is seen. Orcs trapped, trees grab them, and the wood is full of Harolf's folk. Gandalf has collected the wanderers, about five hundred. Hardly any of the attackers escape, so hopelessness turns to victory. Meanwhile, Harolf, told by Gandalf to hold the something road, something or other, another force sent something Eodorus. This is now caught between Harolf and the victorious forces of the king. In a battle on the plain, something, 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 terror struck by Gandalf, by Aragorn and Gandalf. The host, not wishing to rest, rides down the fleeing remnant back towards Isengard. Okay. Um. Yeah. So... Notice the first point that he makes here. Um, this is a this is this is a this is a revision already, right? His first impulse of how to change that first scene that he described, um, that is the the dawn scene, right? Is that he wants to delay first the recog- the, the 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 seeing of the forest by the orcs, right? Um, which makes sense because they have their backs to it, right? They're looking up. It's the people, it's the defenders looking down who are going to be first aware of the forest. Right? That makes perfect sense. Um, so notice what he wants to do. What he wants to do is to have a turning of the tide of battle at dawn. Right? And his reason for this is quite, well, mundane, I guess. Right? Um, uh, just simply, the orcs see way better than the Rohirrim in the dark. So when the dawn comes, 
the Rohirrim have the advantage, right? Because they can see better now. Um, and of course, if you think about it, remember this is not only just being fought in a defense uh, in a de- defensible position, but it's being fought on a steep slope. Even up behind the stun shelf is a pretty steep slope, right? So they um, they're fighting downhill. That's a really big advantage. Um, so now they attack and they drive the orcs down. So we're picturing even before the orcs even realize that the forest is there, they're already driven down past the Stan Rock again, past the, past the, sorry, the Stan Rock is where the, the tower is, the Stan Shelf, right? The Stan Skuth. Um, and the orcs dive back over the wall. That it's the, that deeping, uh, dike, right? The, 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 um, Helm's Dike, rather. Um, and that's when they see that. So it's only after they have been put to flight from the upper level of the defenses, um, after the Rohirrim have gained back all of the ground that they have lost at the end of the night, that the orcs realize that, uh, that yes, Mike, that Burnham Wood has in fact risen and come to, to High Dunsinane Hill. Um, that's exactly, that's exactly what happens. So it's. One of the effects, therefore, of this uh, of this shift, one of the th- one of the directions that he's thinking about pushing it here right away, is essentially to make the 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 final turn in the battle slightly less dramatic, slightly less you catastrophic, slightly slightly less we're just about to all be killed until we're suddenly rescued, right? Um, the men of Rohan start to win. Now, it's still kind of hopeless. I mean, there's still so many of the enemy that it's not like they're really going to win. Um, They can't keep it up for long enough. They're going to be overwhelmed in time. So it's still down to the trees, you know, for saving them. Um, But, um, uh, but it's, uh, um, it is interesting that, that, that they make this shift. I want to make sure something slightly weird seemed to have happened there for a second with my internet connection. I just want to make sure everything... Can you guys hear me all right? You guys still still getting me okay? wanted to just check and make sure that you are... Okay, good. just wanted to check. I had a couple weird things going on, uh, uh, going on now. So, great. Excellent. All right. But wait. We get a little bit more here. Um, another passage that I kind of miss. So... This is just one of those, you know, as he's going through and revising now, Christopher's just giving us stray paragraphs and stuff, not giving us the full text of the, the, the newer versions, the newer layers of this. Um, but here's a fascinating passage. Aragorn was away behind the defenses, tending the wound in Snowmane's shoulder and speaking gentle words to the horse. As the fragrance of Athalas rose in the air, his mind went back to the defense on Weathertop and to the escape from Moria. It is a long journey, he said to himself. From one hopeless corner we escape, but to find another more desperate. Yet alas, Frodo, I would be happier in heart if you were with us in this grim place. Where now do you wander? What a fascinating moment this is, right? Uh, A pause in the middle of the battle, and we find Aragorn reflecting, not just reflecting back over their journey, um, but thinking about Frodo. We never see Aragorn thinking about Frodo, right? Um, and uh, uh, 
And yeah, isn't it interesting? Isn't I mean, it's a little bit funny, right? That he that he kind of would wish that Frodo be trapped in desperate battle, right? I mean, here they are all penned in and very all very likely all to be killed. And he's like, I I, I wish uh, I would be happier if Frodo were with me. And I think the, um, I think the 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 force of that is to show that like, although he's you know tolerably concerned about their odds here in the battle, um, he's even more worried about Frodo. Um, and uh, uh, the doubt, the uncertainty, the, like, the, and I think this, again, thinking of the big context, right? Um, they were in a bad place on Weathertop, they were in a bad place in Moria, Right, they barely escaped from each one. Right, the first time from the attack of the Ringwraiths, the second time from the attack of the Balrog. Uh, now they're being cornered again by a seemingly insurmountable foe. Um, we've escaped from, you know, one helpless, one hopeless corner after another. Right, throughout this journey, and we keep finding ourselves in another more desperate. Um, but what might Frodo be going through? Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he still does desire to protect the bearer, Carrie. I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, and yeah, Veronica, it does sound almost like... I, I don't know that I would necessarily say that he's second-guessing his decision at the Anduin, um, uh, but sort of regretting that it had to happen, I think, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, really cool moment. Okay, so subsequent revisions, Tolkien decides to change the battle plan. And, you know, look, I still love the battle, the published Battle of Helm's Deep. It's still one of my favorite parts in the books. I always have. I've loved it ever since I was a kid. But, um, uh, but I'm going to miss the Stanskulf because I love the stand there and the inlets and everything. I think it's fantastic and uh, I, I loved the description, and I will never not regret um, the fact that we don't get that incredible scene of Aragorn holding back the army single-handedly. Um, but, anyway, it's okay. New plan. Amir and Aragorn decide that they cannot hold Dyke in dark without archers. The dike is over a mile, two miles, long. The main host and king go to Stanrock. The horses are led to the deep. Aragorn and Aemir, with a few men, their horses ready in rear, hold the inlets as long as they dare. These they block with stones, rolled from the rampart. The assault on the inlets soon drives in as the orcs clamber up rampart in between. Ladders? Wild men drive in from north of the deep, where a high stone wall was built. Added here, but at the same time, breastwork crowned with stones. Here Gimli speaks his words. Reduced description of Helm's Dyke. It is not fortified. Orcs boil round foot of the Stanrock. Then describe the assault as above. Orcs piling up over the wall. Wild men climb on the goblins' dead bodies. Moon, something or other. Men fighting on the wall top. Disadvantage of the riders. The wall taken and Rohan driven back into the gorge. Dawn, Amir, and Aragorn go to the Stanrock to stand by the king in the tower. Okay, so let's look at some of the points of difference here. First, so the fundamental change is that uh, 
they've de- they're they're not going to defend the dike at all, right? We're shifting the 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 battle. It's not just that they're going to lose more quickly. I mean, that is what's going to happen. But um, the point is that the 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 main battle that happened, the main description of the battle um, and the defense is going to move from the dike back up to the wall, back up to the deeping wall. Um, so. Instead, we're just gonna we're just gonna overwhelm the dike. Now, I don't know which way this goes, right? Um, what, that is, which way the decision process leading to that first paragraph went. Did Tolkien decide I'd really rather have them defending the wall than this dike? Like, you know, d- does he think that this dike is kind of too quaint? It doesn't seem epic enough, or well, I don't even know why. Like, he he decides that he would prefer to have them defending a proper wall. Right uh, and have the have the main battle take place at a proper wall rather than at this sort of natural cliff. Um, I don't know what too rustic. I have no idea what the rationale was. So maybe he decides I want it at the wall and not at the dike. So I'm gonna I'm gonna find a reason why they can't defend that dike. Um, so I'm gonna reduce the description of it. I'm gonna make it not fortified. Right? It's just it's just a cliff. It's just and there's breaches in it and it's 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 not going to hold them back. And I'm going to make it long. I'm going to make it a, one or two miles long so they can't possibly have enough men to defend that entire way, especially since there are breaches in it and as we see, since it's so wide and they can't defend every point, the orcs are just going to climb over it, right? And so there's really no way of defending it uh consistently. Um so again, the decision can go in one of two ways. Either he decides, I don't want to defend the dike, I want to defend the wall, so I'm going to find some reasons why they can't defend the dike, and I'm going to dispose of it. I'm not going to dispose of it, I'm going to get rid of it, but I'm going to, I'm going to not make it the chief point of defense. Um, or does he go the other way? Does he decide, hang on a second, this doesn't make sense, because if this dike goes across this whole opening, the opening has to be at least a mile wide, right? I mean... The the opening to this valley is not. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was picturing, um, you know, when I was um, when I was picturing that battle uh, at this at, at the Stanskulf as as it was described in that first draft. I was picturing something maybe what at most a hundred yards across, right? Uh, not um, not a mile wide. Right. So I think that so it's it is possible that the choice to abandon the dike and move back to the wall is precipitated by his thinking through the geography. And right as the as the deep is narrowing up towards the top, it makes it easier to defend with fewer men the farther in you go. So it's moved back from the dike and to the wall. That makes more sense. Maybe so maybe it was the geography that led to it. Maybe it was just that he ended up deciding he really wanted a wall instead of a cliff to defend. Uh I don't really um um I don't really uh, yeah, as I say, I don't know which way the direction goes, but one way or the other, that's the choice that he makes. And so Gimli's words about uh, there being strong bones to this land is shifted from him talking about the actual stones of the mountain, right, in the cliff face that they're defending, uh, to the stones with which the walls were built, uh, upon which he is now standing uh, when he says that. Um but of course, we're still going to preserve the descriptions of the bodies and the wild men climbing over the over the goblins' dead bodies. Right? That's fairly gruesome. Um, notice the other change. Right? The other change is that at dawn, Amir and Aragorn are going to go to the Stanrock to stand by the king in the tower again. Remember, that's a shift because instead of having the king come in as 
the king being a catastrophe to Aragorn and and Amir, who were still in the shield wall, right? And then all of a sudden, the king comes charging down with the horses and some extra dudes, right, behind them. Um, they are going to go up to him, and so we're going to have a. It looks like a more concerted charge by all of the Rohirrim down uh, now, which again makes more sense because now they're charging out of a wall, right, through a gate out of a wall, uh, rather than just down from the wall behind and through the through the inlets and the cliffs. Okay, or actually just to the cliffs is all they did uh, before. So now we get the second version of the dawn. They see the sunlight. They see in the sunlight the wonder of the wood. Charge of Theoden. Amir left, Aragorn right. So here we have the clear, like the whole army with those three leaders uh, uh, sweeping down the hillside. With day, fortunes change. Uncertain about the manuscript there, but that's what it seems like it says. Um... And, um, yeah, so again, we have this emphasis on, remember it was there in that previous slide too, about the inadequate night vision of the Rohirrim, right? Men issue on horses, but the host is vast, only it is disconcerted by the wood. Almost the watchers could believe it had moved up the valley as the battle raged. It almost looks like that thing's moving, right? Trees should come right up to the dike. In the, midst, in the midst, out rides Gandalf from the wood and rides through the orcs as if they were rats and crows. <laughs> I love that sentence. I don't think that sentence is really going to be in the book as... They, this, is, this is an outline, right? Um, but, uh, but it's a great image. Yes, it does describe the orcs as carrion eaters, Mike. Um, but that image, ri- Gandalf riding through the orcs as if they were rats and crows... Um, and Gandalf emerging from the wood. Um, uh, the, 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 the people that he is leading, the people of Harolf, the West Marchers, uh, that he has rallied and which he brings in his reinforcements, uh, are uh, coming through the wood uh, here, which is, which is kind of cool. All right, I'm going to let you go soon, but uh, let's end with this. Yeah, let's end with this. I, got, I have... Uh, Two more slides, but I can I, we can carry those over to next time. Um, yeah, Carrie, that's a really great point. That image of Gandalf. Um, she says, "On the white horse with the bright dawn from the dark wood and through the black host." Yeah, the the lights and shadows. You got the white. Even the fact that Shadowfax is not exactly white, but more silver or shadowy. Right, makes Gandalf himself shine the brighter. But then you have the the dark, like the you know the orcs being like uh, like crows, right? So you've got you know, like rats and crows. So you got the uh, the dark. Uh, uh, the dark, uh, the darkness of them, the darkness under the wood, and then uh, and him coming and him riding out and shining on his horse. Lots of really great light imagery. Okay. Well, speaking of epic stuff. Now, with a great cry, a company of the wild men moved forward. Among them, they bore the trunk of a great tree. We now have a battering ram. We need a battering ram. We didn't need a battering ram before because we had no gates in a cliff. Right now, we have gates in the wall, and so we're ramming a gate. 
The orcs crowded about them. The tree was swung by many strong hands and smote the timbers with a boom. At that moment there was a sudden call. Among the boulders upon the flat and narrow rim beneath the fastness and the brink, a few brave men had lain hidden. Aragorn was their leader. "'Up now! Up now!' he shouted. "'Out, Branding! Out!' A blade flashed like white fire. "'Alendil! Alendil!' he shouted, and his voice echoed in the cliffs. "'See! See!' said Aemir. "'Branding has gone to war at last. Why am I not there? We were to have drawn blades together.' None could withstand the onset of Aragorn or the terror of his sword. The orcs fled. The hillmen were hewn down, or fled, leaving their ram upon the ground. The rock was cleared. Then Aragorn and his men turned to run back within the gates while there was yet time. His men had passed within, when again the lightning flashed. Thunder crashed. From among the fallen at the top of the causeway, three huge orcs sprang up. The white hand could be seen on their shields. Men shouted warning from the gates, and Aragorn for an instant turned. At that moment, the foremost of the orcs hurled a stone. It struck him on the helm, and he stumbled, falling to his knee. The thunder rolled. Before he could get up and back, the three orcs were upon him. Man, the three orcs were upon him. Uh... And here's, here's poor Aragorn struck on the helm, right, falling to his knee, right? Here's Aragorn, like, in the concussion protocol while the three orcs are pouncing on him from behind. And this, of course, is the moment where Gimli's going to do his Baruch Hazad thing and come out and rescue Aragorn. Um, this scene, very similar to the one that we get in the published text, but it's much more in so many ways. Look not only at the the facts of the case, right? Aemir isn't there, it's just Aragorn, right? Aragorn with only a small group of men. Um, and once again, Aragorn is last standing alone, uh, the last to, 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 to go back into the gates after everyone is in. And now he's ambushed, now the orc reaches him, right? Uh, and he's pounced on by three orcs and he's been hit in the head, right? And it looks, everything is, and then he's rescued uh, by Gimwe. But it's not just the facts of things, right? Um, it's also the description. Think back to when Aemir is, uh, is... Of course, it's Aemir in the published text, who is with, in fact, Aragorn, and does, in fact, get to draw their blades together. Um, but he's the one who gets uh, tackled by hidden orcs and pounced upon by three orcs who are then slain by Gimli, uh, the first three orcs that Gimli slays in the Battle of Helm's Deep. But... Um, but think of what we don't get. We don't get... His men had passed within when again the lightning flashed. Thunder crashed. Right? Um, the, the, the thunder rolling later on, like the, the crash of the... Th- I mean, it's so much more dramatic. It's so, it's, it's so much more uh, compellingly present a scene, whereas the scene as described at the Battle of Helm's Deep in the book is much more distant, right? It's much more... Um, kind of, I was going to say objective, but that's not exactly quite right. Um, much more distant. The narrator is much more distant from it. Um, there's an immediacy, there's a kind of drama to this, uh, which is um, much more present and compelling than the drama that we get in many of those situations, many of the descriptions um, of the action at the Battle of Helm's Deep in the book, which is kind of an interesting choice. All right, um, I'm keeping you late now, and I shouldn't do that, so I'm going to let you guys go. Um, look at that, I got through 18 slides tonight, not too bad. Oh, I still have uh, just a couple left, but not too many. 
Uh, that's fine. Let's see, who's the next one? Oh yeah, we'll save that one for next time. Talking about the uh, the language of the the Westfold. So well, yeah, we'll do that next time. Okay, so uh, next um, next couple chapters for next time, uh, and we'll finish those up. Thank you, everybody. We're gonna. Um, we will have class next week. Um, I will be here next week. I'm going to be away the week after that. So we'll have class next week and then off the week after that. And then I'll be back uh, in March, first week of March. So I will see you guys uh, next Wednesday. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. <laughs>